episode 100, Pinball Wizard. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the February 10th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. That's right, kids. It's our 100th podcast. So, to mark this momentous occasion, in addition to talking about one of our cool museum artifacts and connecting our favorite Kansan to Benjamin Franklin, did you come up with a solution? We'll be taking a look back at some of your favorite bits from previous episodes. But first, on to the matter at hand. Ever since I was a young boy, I've played the silver ball. From Soho down to Brighton, I must have played them all. But I ain't seen nothing like him in any amusement hall. That depth of a flying kid sure plays a mean pinball. Parents today complain about their kids wasting time sitting in front of TV and computer monitors playing video games. But before the advent of these time-sucking diversions, many of these now-complaining parents wasted their time in bowling alleys and arcades playing pinball machines. We have a very interesting 1960s pinball machine in the museum collection, and curator Blair Tarr will be here to tell us about it. And then... In honor of today's historic 100th episode, we asked you to connect William Allen White to the man on the $100 bill, Benjamin Franklin. Did White have a fondness for flying kites during thunderstorms? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. Then, stick around for a few blasts from the past as we trip down memory lane with a few of your favorite bits from previous podcasts. But first, Pinball Wizard. Okay, Blair, I have to admit, I'm kind of excited about this one. And I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a mid-1960s pinball machine, and I should remind listeners that they can see photos on our website, ksh.org, and you should, because this thing's a riot. Um, <laughs> so I guess the first question is, who are the Boodles? They are the second most famous rock and roll group to come out of England, out of Liverpool, <laughs> right after the Ruttles. <laughs> You're not buying this. I can see no, that. No. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> the Boodles were a made-up group that are obviously supposed to be the Beatles yeah. from the 1960s. Uh, Beatlemania sweeping the country. One company that produces... Pinball machines was trying to cash in on Beatlemania and create a Beatles themed pinball machine, which uh, didn't quite work out the way they'd hoped. <laughs> <laughs> so, why didn't the manufacturer use the Beatles? Well, they did negotiate, apparently. It was Williams Electronic out of Chicago, which made a lot of pinball machines at that time. I think they, no, that's right, they no longer do. But uh, apparently, it's just kind of interesting that they apparently did think they had negotiations settled. It's not quite sure how this worked out exactly. There are back glasses on pinball machines that actually have the Beatles' name on it <laughs> for this type of machine, but uh, for whatever reason, that fell through. And whether they produced these before or after it finally settled something, we're not sure, but they didn't get the Beatles' permission to use their name, so they went with the Boodles. <laughs> So I wonder Hiding it very carefully. No one noticed the difference between the... <laughs> what, what do you think the Boodles' hit songs would have been? 
<laughs> Probably a lot like the Ruddles, actually. Like if all, all, you, all you need is cash. And <laughs> all right, so let's get back to the pinball she- machine. Uh, can you describe this particular pinball machine? Is there anything unusual about it, or is it pretty standard? Well, it's pretty standard for the 1960s, anyway. It doesn't have some of the flashing stuff that you see later on when video machines started coming in yeah. as well. Uh, the back glass, uh, back glass, mm, backlash, 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 <laughs> as uh, the words beat time on it. And then there's a image of a band with a drum that has the Bootles name on it. And it was a big surprise. The band looks a lot like the Beatles with their mop top <laughs> haircuts. And there are a few ladies sitting around in miniskirts, too, sort of catching that, too. And I think there's sort of a, there's a backwards sign for somebody. I don't know why they have it backwards, but it says, Love Dingo. <laughs> Instead of Ringo. <laughs> Again, just subtly hiding the fact that they were trying to cash in on the Beatles. Yes, yes. <laughs> and weren't there other names of yeah, bands on there, too? The, the surface of the, the pinball machine uh, has carries out this again with the figures, the girls, the band members. And then there are a few names on there. Uh, there's the Vultures, which we think are the Ventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, neat blood, which we think is young blood, and the one that I really do like—I know somebody mentioned this—that's the groaning bones. Yeah, it's very appropriate which, today. Uh, yeah, it <laughs> sums up the Rolling Stones very nicely, actually, in 2010. But <laughs> all right, so let's get a little pinball history. History: How long have pinball machines been around? Well, it depends. How far you want to go back on this, actually. Yeah. Uh, the earliest inspiration is actually back in the court, the French court of Louis XIV, uh, when they came up with a, some, a game called Bagatelle, mm-hmm. which used a slanted surface like a pinball machine would have, except that you used a cue stick to move the balls. And the idea was to get the balls into holes around the board. So right. holes providing more points than the others, and there are pins on the board that you can bounce <laughs> the balls off of. So sounds a little familiar. Yes, it does. <laughs> uh, that eventually came to America, and uh, there's one description that says there's even an uh, editorial cartoon from the 1860s that shows Lincoln playing Bagatelle. Huh. So we could have had that for the exhibit. Yes. Yeah, no, we we should have gotten one two of those. Of those. Yes. <laughs> Uh, uh, in the 1870s, a fellow named Montague Redgrave uh, moved from England to Cincinnati, and while he was there, he made a change to the Bagatelle board. He uh, uh, made the spring and plunger that we're familiar with today for moving the board instead of using a cue stick. So and okay. that's, that really gets us to pinball machine as we know it pretty much today. Uh, Biggest popularity is probably the 30s and 40s, although it gets some controversy because a lot of places ban pinball machine because they think it's a game of chance. Oh, gambling associated. Yes, and so they're they're not welcome everywhere until somebody finally convinced them it's more a game of skill than it really <laughs> is a game of chance. Have you ever played this game? <laughs> um, great. And so did you play pinball when you were younger? Still, uh, <laughs> do you still play pinball? If I find a pinball machine somewhere, I, I'm, I'm likely to stick a few quarters in. Yeah, it's hard to find them anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know, they. Um, I used to play as a kid. I think it was at the Y at some day camps. They had pinball 
machines there. Um, there's still several places in Lawrence that have pinballs and free play during yeah. the afternoons. <laughs> yeah, I think the most I really played, I don't really have any stories that I remember about it, but just in college, yeah, the union had pinball machines and some of them were about as old as the Boodles ones, actually. And they'd been around for a while, that took even for me. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think usually most of the time I'd head, head over to the union after a test and take off my frustrations. Or yeah, you can really get into a <laughs> yeah. game of pinball. Um, and finally, if you were going to design a Kansas history pinball machine, what would be on it? Well, we have a great opportunity, actually, when you think of it. The 150th anniversary is coming up, so yes. we can have it blazing with sunflowers with the 150th <laughs> logo on it. And we can have things like John Brown and Eisenhower and Kerry Nation beating off uh, the uh, drunken bushwhackers coming across <laughs> the border. <laughs> and maybe they could all be connected with... The Yellow Brick Road. The Yellow Brick Road, yes. Yeah. And they usually have some of the Jayhawks and Wildcats fighting on the board, oh, too. Yeah. Could, this could be a very violent pinball game, oh, actually. Yeah. It could be very popular. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I could put one in the museum lobby. And yes. Take a little money. If we could have food, if we could press pennies, we could certainly do that. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks a lot, Blair. You're welcome. <laughs> Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Museum Director Bob Kickeisen. Hi. Well, as we told everyone at the top of the podcast, this is our 100th, 100th episode. So we thought it'd be appropriate to connect William Allen White with something related to the number 100. So we asked our listeners and Nikayla to, <laughs> to connect <laughs> Mr. White to the man on the $100 bill, Benjamin Franklin. So, Bob, can you give us a little background on the man we have to thank for giving us bifocals? Yes, I'm using them right now, as a matter of fact. So, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's really hard to figure out where to begin with Franklin because he probably fits the description of Renaissance man uh, better than almost any American in history. Yeah. Author, newspaper publisher and printer, uh, satirist, politician, political theorist, inventor, scientist. Statesman, soldier, diplomat. When did he sleep? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you name it. He, he probably did it. Well, Franklin was born in 1706 in Boston, and he was the 15th of 17 children that his father had with two wives. So, wow. luckily, that was <laughs> not one. Yeah. Yeah. Poor, tired, tired me. Poor Mrs. Franklin. <laughs> Well, he attended Boston Latin School and later became an apprentice printer to his older brother, James. That's sort of where he learned the trade. And Franklin always had sort of a, a writing bent and, you know, was always, you know, thinking about politics and issues of the day. So he submitted a letter to the paper that his brother printed and his brother refused to print it. And so he resubmitted the letter under the pseudonym Mrs. Silence Doogood, which I think should have been a tip-off right there. But uh, anyway, James went ahead and, and published the letter, and it was popular and created much discussion. So Mrs. Silence Doogood had a number of letters published until James found out hmm. <laughs> that Benjamin... Makes you wonder if you read the letter in the first place. If it was like, oh, that's from my brother. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, at age 17, just a couple of years later, Franklin ran away to Philadelphia uh, to get a fresh start, and he worked there as a printer and a bunch of other jobs. And by age 24, he'd established his own print shop and began publishing the Pennsylvania Gazette. 
And it was also at this time that we got another aspect of Franklin's personality. He uh, fathered an illegitimate son, William, who interestingly enough later would become the last loyalist governor of New Jersey during hmm. the Revolutionary War. So he and his biological father had this falling out because Franklin was obviously a big supporter of American independence <laughs> and his son was the loyalist governor of New Jersey. So they didn't quite see eye to eye on those issues. Well, back to his earlier years in 1733 when he was 27, he began publishing what's probably his best known and most widely read work, uh, Poor Richard's Almanac. And he published that for 25 years, and it's from that work that we get most of his pithy sayings that everybody quotes now, like a penny saved is a penny earned, and fish and visitors stink after three days. <laughs> I have to remember that one. Yeah. That one comes in handy. Um, notice he doesn't say relatives, but I guess you could put that in here with visitors. But anyway, and he was quite the inventor, and we don't have nearly the time to go into this aspect of his life. But in addition to the bifocals that Morgan mentioned earlier, uh, some of the other things he's credited with inventing are the lightning rod, uh, the Franklin stove, um, and an early form of an odometer that he developed for carriages. Uh, in addition to his inventions, his scientific pursuits included his well-known fascination with electricity, uh, there's a lot of stories about that, most probably uh, uh, close to the truth, but, you know, standing out with the kite and the thunderstorm kind of thing, sort of Washington and the cherry tree. And he, But he did have an insatiable curiosity about the weather and weather patterns, and he wrote about that extensively. But he's perhaps best known, I think, in his career for his accomplishments and contributions to American politics and diplomacy. Uh, writing extensively on those, and in 1776, he was elected as the Pennsylvania representative to the Second Continental Congress, where he was one of the committee of five that was uh, assigned to draft uh, the Declaration of Independence, one of his big contributions, although Jefferson's the primary writer. Franklin served on the committee. Uh, he then served as the United States ambassador to France from 1776 to 1785, and then returned where he was an honorary delegate to the Constitutional Convention that obviously drew up the U.S. Constitution. And he's one of only six men to have signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Wow. And following that, he served as governor. <laughs> Keeps going. Yeah. Well, he lived till he was 84. And um, after the Constitutional Convention, he served as uh, governor of Pennsylvania until 1788, and in, during that time he wrote his autobiography. And he passed away on April 17, 1790, at the age of 84, and was buried in Philadelphia. And in 1914, he became the face of the $100 bill, and is one of only two non-presidents on our current currency. So, you know, yeah. trivia. <laughs> yeah. hmm. everybody else is a president except Franklin, and the one you're, that you're more likely to have in your wallet. Hamilton. Hamilton. On the tail. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm much more acquainted Cash. with Mr. Hamilton. I was thinking George Washington. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't president. No. <laughs> so. Anyway, so no. that, uh, not so much in a nutshell, is Benjamin Franklin. Great. Well, thank you, Bob. And uh, Nikayla, let's hear your solution. Okay, well, I am so thankful that Benjamin Franklin was the publisher of the Pennsylvania Gazette because I might have been sunk on this one. <laughs> there were some others, but they were really lengthy. But um, So anyway, um, uh, Franklin was the publisher of the Pennsylvania Gazette, and I thought about taking the easy way out and saying, and William Allen White was the publisher of the Emporium. <laughs> yeah. But that, yeah, that doesn't seem to work. But, okay, so anyway, the Gazette remained in print until 1800, so 10 years after Franklin died. And then it reemerged with new owners and a new name in 1821, and we know it now as the Saturday Evening Post. 
1898, the Saturday Evening Post commissioned William Allen White to write several articles. And White is among many famous authors who are published in that publication, including Edgar Allan Poe, Ray Bradbury, F. Scott Fitzgerald, John Steinbeck, and Kurt Vonnegut. Wow. So, wow. there That's you a go. Quick one. Yeah. yeah. Thank God for publications. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Nikayla. Um, Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Well, our next podcast will be on February 24th, which is less than a week before the start of National Women's History Month, which is every year in March. And this year, um, Women's History Month is marking its 30th anniversary. And the topic of our next podcast is going to be an unusual painting we have in our collection that's related to women's suffrage and caused quite a stir when it was unveiled in 1893. So in keeping with that theme of um, honoring National Women's History Month, we want you to connect William Allen White with a woman who co-sponsored the legislation that established National Women's History Month, and that's the senior senator from Maryland, Barbara Mikulski. Oh, all right. right. <laughs> Have fun, Nikayla. Okay. <laughs> so if you think you can connect our favorite Kansan to one of the longest-serving women senators in the U.S. history, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. Well, as we've been telling you ad nauseum, this podcast is our 100th episode, and we thought we'd mark the occasion by revisiting some favorite moments from previous podcasts. We started this little adventure nearly four years ago, and we've released a new episode every two weeks since that time. So here with a look back at our own ghost of podcast past, museum director Bob Keckeisen. Thanks, Morgan. As you mentioned, we started this little adventure way back in April of 2006 when most of us weren't even sure what the term podcast meant. The Cool Things pages on our website had always been the most popular segment of our online presence, but we wanted to give folks more. A look at what goes into choosing and researching those items, why we find them fascinating, and how they came into the collection. It's just what our podcast intro says each week, giving our listeners the story behind the story. So, like good historians, we did some research on it, and then we dove headfirst into the wonderful world of podcasting. We assigned the lion's share of the duties to our assistant curator, Merle Riedel, who took to the job like a kid in a candy store. Here's a bit from our very first podcast in April of 2006. Looking back, you could probably sense the tone of where things were going to go when the first artifact we chose to feature was a 1930s pair of Mickey Mouse underwear. Episode 1. Who wore the Mickey Mouse undies? I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an April 26, 2006 podcast from the Kansas State Historical Society. Each quarter, curators select five artifacts for the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. With this podcast series, we take a closer look at these artifacts and find out the story behind the story. In the following interview, Rebecca Martin, assistant director at the Kansas Museum of History, answers revealing questions on a pair of Mickey Mouse underwear from the 1930s. Um, looks like you have selected a pair of Mickey Mouse underwear or undies um, to write about in the cool things. Mm -hmm. um, Can I just say up front, though, that I've known all along that this was just an excuse for you to ask me rude questions about underwear, especially Mickey Mouse undies. So I want you to get those rude questions out of the way first so we can proceed with the serious historical nature of Mickey Mouse undies. So, Merle, rude question? Okay, so... <laughs> My first question is about your underwear. Um, has anybody else ever worn this underwear? 
no, it's on record in the files that this underwear has never been worn. And actually, it is really pretty cool underwear. Uh, it's still in its original cardboard box, and it's got paper tags on it. Um, we don't know exactly where this underwear came from. Well, I mean, we know the donor's name, but this lady never had children. So we're not sure how she acquired toddler's underwear. Um, but it's a really cool item that they've never been worn there in absolutely pristine condition. And Merle concluded the interview by asking Rebecca if these undies came in adult sizes and where he could get some. I will say that um, an internet. I did an internet search for Mickey Mouse undies and I got some interesting hits including some modern day underwear licensed by Disney. And here's some printouts for you Merle. I hope that you like boxers because they don't make briefs. Thanks. This this will work out well. Thanks, Rebecca. Oh. Hey, thanks for giving us some information on the undies as well. You're very welcome. Who's the leader of the clock that's made for you and me? One thing we learned early on in the podcast is that sometimes the best information may not come from or be about the artifact itself, but rather in response to some bizarre question that Merle asked. One of our staff favorites came in Episode 4, Southern Rights Flag. As you may or may not know, historians have been wrangling over the causes of the Civil War since the time of the Civil War. Countless books and articles have been written about it, but in this June 7, 2006 interview with museum curator Blair Tarr, Merle cut right to the chase. In ten words or less, was the Civil War about slavery or states' rights? It's slavery, states' rights, economics. Last two revolve around slavery. <laughs> Okay. Okay, that does it, Blair. Well, thank you for... One episode from that first year's podcast that resonated with several listeners was one we called The Worst Game Ever Invented, and it featured a 1960s electric football game similar to one that I'd had as a child. Here's a bit of Merle's interview with me from Episode 5 in June of 2006. Um, some say that electronic football, game, football uh, was the worst game ever invented. Why would someone say that? <laughs> Well, that's, uh, I don't think I'd argue with that. I think it quite possibly could be the worst game ever invented. Uh, I mean, you, when you think about it, you know, you've got, you know, eight and nine-year-old kids, uh, and you have to elaborately set up each play. So, you know, children of that age, particularly boys, are not known for their infinite patience. And to have to set up 22 players in a specific formation and then turn on the game, and it's just, as I said, it's just chaos. Uh, the, the players don't go where you want them to. A lot of times they just, you know, link arms and go around in circles. You'll have the, you know, the kind of rogue linebacker over in the corner of the end zone just doing this little do -si do all by himself, sort of looking like he just got off the tilt-a-whirl. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, maniacal. And then, you know, when you finally figure out that the play has stopped because one player has touched the player with the ball and it's a tackle or the pass has been completed or incompleted and then you have a big fight over that, then you turn the board off and then you have to set it all up again. So if you really want to play you know, four quarters if you time it and you ran a clock with it, you know, it it could take weeks to play a game. So it's uh, it, it's a game, I think, that's that was good in concept and in execution. It was just um, fell a little bit short. But I think it's interesting because so many people my age just have wonderful memories of playing electronic football because I think it's such a bizarre game. Um, it's something you don't see now. You know, with a, I sound like a, the quintessential old guy. You know, well, you know, video games when I was a kid, we didn't have video games. But you know, to, to think that you know you just sat there and watched a vibrating board and that was our <laughs> entertainment is kind of sad, actually. 
Yeah, a little sad. Um, It's always nice to know that we actually have listeners out there, and we really do appreciate hearing from you. One of our favorite listener responses came in early 2007, after we'd featured a chair in the collection that had been carved by a chainsaw artist. We didn't know much about the artist, but we did have a photo of him, and that led Merle and Blair to speculate about his lifestyle and his whereabouts. To set this up, here's the bit from episode 22. In the first half of today's episode, curator Blair Tarr tells me about a chair carved by chainsaw artist Wild Mountain Man Ray Murphy. Chainsaw artist, Wild Mountain Man. Sounds like a good idea to me. You won't believe what this guy can do with a chainsaw. The chair is carved from a chunk of cottonwood, lovingly referred to as the state stump. So that's where the tree came from, and then it came down, and, uh, and then it was felled. Um, yes. And then there was a uh, <laughs> then there was a young man that came through town that apparently was a was a sort of sculptor. He went by the name of uh, Wild Mountain Man Ray Murphy, which I saw a picture of him in a news article, and he kind of looks like a homeless guy. <laughs> um, but he sculpted with a chainsaw. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, about Wild Mountain Man Ray Murphy? Yeah, I, I think Ray. I've never met him, of course, but I. He, he obviously is a bit of one of those characters that could be interesting. And by the way, we think he's still alive. So, Ray, if you're listening, send all your complaints, rebuttals, <laughs> I was corrections about the guy to thing. Merle Riedel. That's M-U-R-L-R-I-E-D-E-L. <laughs> Sorry, Ray. At the time, he was living in South Dakota, and he'd been a chainsaw artist since he was the age of 10 or in the early 50s. He carved just about anything. I think with a small chainsaw, he's even supposed to have carved his name on a number two pencil. That is amazing. Which must be a really small chainsaw, but it's... (laughs) Or else he is very good. Uh, I think he's up in the state of Maine now, at least the last I could find anything about him. But he was apparently just going around from city to city. Well, as you just heard, Blair said, Ray, if you're listening... Well, lo and behold, Ray was listening, and he got in touch with us. So here's the follow-up from the very next episode. Reader response. Uh, this is the section where we're going to get some feedback from you, the listener, and we're going we're gonna to read it on the air. We, we haven't done this before, and uh, to be honest, I don't know if we're going to do, do it again. But uh, I like this reader's response so much, I thought it needed to be uh, brought up. Um, in episode 22, State Stump, I accused Chainsaw Sculptor, Wild Mountain Man Ray Murphy of resembling a homeless man. Uh, Well, luckily, or unluckily, Mr. Murphy uh, happens to be a listener and has an update for us. And uh, Curator Blair Tarr, since you're the one who got me in trouble, if you listen to episode 22, uh, you're going to read Mr. Murphy's response. Actually, he was very nice in his response. He goes like this. Hello, Merle Riedel. I live in Eastbrook, Maine, and have my business as a chainsaw sawyer artist in Hancock, Maine. I lived in Rapid City, South Dakota when I went to Topeka, Kansas. I did do a lot of traveling with my art, doing several shows and artwork for several people in different states. The pencil with my name was done in Colorado, where Ripley's Believe It or Not did their first story about me. Oh, by the way, I have never been homeless. I am a family man who still works hard and at one time did a lot of time on the road. Thank you, Ray Murphy. Sorry, Mr. Murphy. Yes, we're sorry. Uh, We do appreciate you contacting us. Uh, This is a shortened version of your email. You actually did give us some additional information about the chair that we really appreciate having. So thank you very much. So that one definitely falls into the small world category. And speaking of small world, 
In July of 2007, on the same day that Merle and curator Laura Van Orsdale recorded episode 33 about a 1940s baseball uniform from the Kansas town of Narca, a 94-year-old gentleman who had played on the Narca town team happened to be visiting the museum. So Merle grabbed the recorder and went out to interview him in front of the uniform where it was on display in our gallery. They had, we had what they called a pasture league. They had six pasture leagues. They had ball diamonds out in pastures, and we had six of them in the area around between these three towns, and they had a league. A and, pasture league, and you played uh, baseball uh, in pastures. No. Yeah, and they didn't have no fence around or anything. Uh, sometimes they use a mattress for a backstop. Mr. Pileski also um, was kind enough to bring in a photograph for us, and it's a photograph of the NARCA team. Um, it's a little earlier than what the uniforms we have in our exhibit, but uh, I thought it was interesting. It was a photo of the whole team, and he's the only one who's surviving still. Everybody else has passed away. Yeah, it's pretty. it's a pretty neat photograph. It's um, actually in front of the NARCA city elevator. Right. It's taken on the baseball field, and in the background you can see the grain elevator. And there's a row of two uh, two rows of young men in mm -hmm. baseball uniforms, yeah. but uh, yeah. So we just want to give um, Mr. Poleski uh, a thank you for coming by and telling us some additional information. And finally, in episode 23, that's the one where we read Wild Mountain Man Murphy's letter informing us that he indeed was not homeless. Well, it was notable not only for that bit of serendipity, but also because it was our first foray into the now well-established and wildly popular game, Six Degrees of William Allen White. Here are Merle and Nikayla explaining how the game is played. Now it's time for a little game I like to call Six Degrees of William Allen White. I have someone here helping me explain how the game's going to work. Uh, this is Nikayla Zimmerman. And Nikayla, uh, you actually came up with the idea for Six Degrees of William Allen White, didn't you? Did I? You did. I'm brilliant. So here's basically how the game works. I will give you, the listening public, an event or a person, and then you email me with the chain of connection between that event and William Allen White. So here's an example of how the game works. And, Nikayla, you're going to be our first contestant. Okay. This is just to show the public how the game works. Um, I'll give you the challenge, and you connect William Allen White uh, to the event. So the first challenge is connect William Allen White to The Shining, which is a book okay. by Stephen King. William Allen White and his family vacationed every summer in Estes Park, Colorado, like many Kansans did. Correct. Their cabin was, and currently still is, just down the road from the Stanley Hotel. Stephen King stayed at the Stanley Hotel while writing The Shining, and in fact, the Stanley Hotel inspired the book's haunted Overlook Hotel. So there you have it, William Allen White to The Shining. That's quite impressive. Well, since that fateful day in 2007, we've connected William Allen White in six degrees or less to 76 different things. Everything from Rob Blagojevich to the Jolly Green Giant, and from the Dalai Lama to Battlestar Galactica. Stay tuned to see who's next, or send us ideas of your own. That tonight's gonna be a good night That tonight's gonna be a good night That tonight's gonna be a good, good night Tonight's the night, let's live it up We've had an absolute blast putting these podcasts together every two weeks and we truly appreciate your loyal support and feedback. Let us know what you like and send us your Six Degrees of William Allen White ideas. We love hearing from listeners. 
We've still got lots of cool things in the collection to explore, so we hope you'll stick around and join us for the next 100 episodes as we continue to bring you the story behind the story. Thanks for listening. Fill up my cup, mazel tov. Look at her dancing, just take it off. Let's paint the town, we'll shut it down. Let's burn the roof, and then we'll do it again. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it.